Welcome to the Honest Field Guide Podcast, a weekly show dedicated to winning in entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. I'm the CEO of Burt Creative, a leadership, brand strategy, and visual identity agency dedicated to helping scale brands and assist with their adaptability with the market. On my show, you get to eavesdrop in on intimate conversation with business leaders and inspired entrepreneurs designed to give you tips and strategies so your own business can thrive. Subscribe and join me each week for laughter, inspiration, and honest stories. everybody. Welcome to my show, The Honest Field Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. Thank you so much for joining me today. You could be listening to any podcast in the world right now, but you're choosing to listen to mine. If you're a new listener to my show, please subscribe to my show on Apple Podcasts or search Google The Honest Field Guide Podcast and look for Google Podcasts where you can listen to my show right from your browser on any device, no subscription required. Share my podcast with your friends too. The more people that hear my show, the better for my guests. And can you please leave a review of my show on Apple Podcasts so they pay more attention to my show? Come on, Apple, give me some love. All right. So before I introduce my guest, I want to tell a short story about my childhood and home-cooked foods. In my home growing up, my mother cooked everything from scratch, and I do mean everything. Pancakes, white rice in a regular pot, yes, not a rice cooker, corned beef with cabbage, braised meats. Lots of vegetables, steaks, roasted chicken, spaghetti, meatballs, pot pies, all the food. Nothing was store-bought, nothing except for on Fridays where I'd get a can of cream soda and maybe an order of McDonald's french fries and a single burger. That's what I got on Fridays. But what I remember most fondly is my mother baked all of the sweets from apple and pecan pies, homemade crust, peanut butter cookies, oatmeal, chocolate chip, brownies, carrot cake, German chocolate cake. Angel food cake, my favorite. She even made rum balls. It was all fresh and homemade. I inherited her love of cooking and baking. And when I got married, my husband realized that he hit the jackpot on many levels, but probably the most because he married a woman that could and loved to cook. And she also knew how to bake. So, okay, cupcakes. I want to talk a little bit about cupcakes. I love, love, love cupcakes. They are so different from any other type of baked goods. They fit in your hand and you have to eat the entire thing. You can't just eat one bite. And if you're a frosting person like my husband, you can eat the top of the cupcake with a fork and leave the bottom crusty part in the paper cup for the cake lover, which is me. So I've tried as many different cupcakes as possible, and I'm always in a quest to find the absolutely best one. The thing is, cupcakes are the one baked good that I don't bake. Like I make muffins, but I can't really do cupcakes well. And I don't know, maybe it's like baking bread, another task I'm not really good at. I'm not really good at making pie crust either. I think that making a cupcake takes artistry. It takes a sweeter soul and a marketing genius to make a good cupcake. So doesn't everybody have their cupcake story? So here's my big cupcake story. I was working on site at my client's office, Google in Chicago. I was taking a snack break and I walked to one of their micro kitchens, which are these really amazing little places filled with snacks like nuts and hard boiled eggs and drinks and chips and all this amazing stuff. You're like, I'm in heaven. But when I looked over to the counter in the kitchen, there was a box 
a beautifully designed box and there was like colors on top of it. And someone opened it and there were two dozen cupcakes in this box. And what caught my eye about these cupcakes was the dot on the cupcakes of like a perfect little circle on top of another perfect circle, smoothly swirled ice cream on top of the cake. And each cupcake had like this cute little pin. And I was astonished. I was like, oh my God, I've never seen a cupcake like this before. What is this? And so they were lined up and it was like appealing to me because I'm a designer. I'm a graphic designer. I'm a brand strategist. I build a lot of creative platforms for a lot of clients. And it's just like, I looked and I thought, these were designed for me. These are my type of cupcakes. I mean, they are really organized. <laughs> I was offered one and I took a bite. And I was like, oh my God, it was the most heavenly cupcake I'd ever had in my life. I'm telling you, I'm not even saying that because today on my show, I have Candace Nelson, the founder of Sprinkles Cupcakes. According to website Candace-Nelson.com, Candace is a wildly successful entrepreneur known for co-founding Sprinkles, the world's first cupcake bakery and ATM, and most recently, Pazana, which is a growing chain of neo-neapolitan pizzerias. So she continues to expand her portfolio of investments with CN2 Ventures, a family office and adventure studio, which invests in early stage consumer companies. Candace is also a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Sprinkles Baking Book, co-creator and executive producer of Hulu's Best in Dough. And she's executive producer and judge on Netflix, Sugar Rush, and judge on 100 plus episodes of Food Network's hit show, Cupcake Wars. Her new book, which we'll learn more about a little bit later is Sweet Success, A Simple Recipe to Turn Your Passion into Profit. Okay, Candace, welcome to my show. Wow. I mean, it's clear that I'm on the perfect show. Not only are you a baker and a lover of design and sprinkles cupcakes, but you also said angel food cake is your favorite? Yes. Yes, it is. I literally, I beat my drum like all day long about angel food cake and how it was hot in the 80s and it's time for it to come back. And I make angel food cake for all my kids' birthdays. I mean, unless we're having sprinkles, of course, but we have so much in common. I'm just so excited to dig in. You know, I could spend a lot of time talking with you about angel food cake and angel food cupcakes because that's actually a thing. There's actually a place in Chicago that makes angel food cake muffins. And I was told by one of the people that works there that there's like a cult following with these muffins. But I don't want to get distracted because, again, that's one of my favorite flavors. And I did want to ask you later, is Sprinkles ever going to make one? But I digress. So... <laughs> I, I got to keep myself focused because there's so much <laughs> I have to ask you. There's so many questions. I have so many questions. Oh, my God. And I am very tangential. In spite of my organized cupcakes, I myself like am kind of a crazy ADHD person. So you got to keep me on track. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We're in trouble. Okay. Well, listen, first of all, I, for the very first time, had a gluten-free cupcake and it was yours. It was a blueberry lemon gluten-free cupcake. I mean, I died from delight when I ate that thing. I ate it live on Instagram. My hair was a mess. My Afro, I have like a new Afro now since the pandemic. I had no makeup on and I did not care. I was in shock. It was my, <laughs> it is my new favorite. And I'm like, I've never in my life ever had a gluten-free anything like that. I was like, there's no way this is gluten-free. It was just so delicious. Let me back up a little bit. So you were born in Indonesia, right? When I think of Indonesia, I think of colors are swirling in my mind. Like, can you talk a little bit about this Indonesian life that you had when you were a child? 
I know it's crazy, right? I think it's when you Google my name, it's one of the first things that comes up that I'm an Indonesian born pastry chef. Like it leads with that. And a lot of people are a little confused about that. But my father, he was a lawyer for a couple different multinational companies growing up and his expertise was Southeast Asia. So when we weren't living in the upper Midwest at headquarters for Kimberly Clark and Dow Chemical, we were in Jakarta. We were in Maidan. We were in Singapore. My parents ended up living in Bangkok later when I was in college. I went to kindergarten in Hong Kong. So I had this incredibly diverse upbringing. And I think it really lends itself to what I ended up doing with my life, which was devoting myself to a really classic American dessert. Because when I was living overseas, that's how I felt connected to home. These were analog days. I wasn't able to just email my friends or click on Netflix. So I had to go in the kitchen and make brownies and Rice Krispie treats and angel food cake and all the things I missed from home because I couldn't get them at the corner store in Indonesia. So what were your early experiences with food and baked goods? You know, when I was a kid, as I mentioned earlier, my mother cooked everything. So I was always in the kitchen. And so was my brother, actually. You know, I remember very distinctly her mixing bowl and her mixing pans and her cupcake pans and cake rolls and things like that. What was it like with you when you were little? Do you have memories of that? So many memories of that. I spent hours in the kitchen with my mom baking alongside her. I remember her Joy of Cooking cookbook, which I basically only used the baking recipes out of, but it was one of those well-worn cookbooks with like stains and notes in the margins and all these dog ears. And it was like a well-used cookbook. And I loved it. It was magic to me, just the way that you could add ingredients to a bowl, mix them up, put them in the oven and watch them transform into something else. It was like my version. I have two boys now. They're both into magic. It was my version of magic. And I always say if they had taught science in school through baking, I would have actually been interested in science because here's this great real world application of incredible chemistry. So yes, I have wonderful memories. I love that you brought up the science because I was actually going to ask you about that. You know, baking is a science. And did you ever consider that you're a scientist? I have a client that has a STEM organization. And one of the things that they told me when I first started working with this client CPAS Foundation was there are people that are doctors that understand science really well, but then they transitioned to something different. Some of them became bakers, some of them became inventors, some of them became product designers, you know, things like that. When you were younger, did it ever cross your mind that you could have been a scientist? Was that something that was interesting to you? Were you encouraged to go into STEM at all? I was not, I was intimidated by science. I just, I didn't, I was okay with math. But science to me, that's why I say if they had taught baking and I could have seen this great real world application for it, I might have taken a different turn. But I do love the fact that baking is this intersection of science meets art because you have to really own the chemistry to get the product just how you want. But then there's that decorating part where you can just go crazy with creativity it kind of scratches both sides of my brain. And Sprinkles was, again, it was a creative endeavor, but it ended up being big business as well. And so I think I really thrive as a creative entrepreneur when I am in that sort of intersecting Venn diagram of like science and business meets art. So 
So let me ask you about high school. I love talking about high school because high school is a place where I think girls in particular, they learn a lot and some don't. There's relationships. There's just transformational changes with your body and your mind. Were you involved in sports? Were you academic? Were you in cooking classes? I mean, what was going on? Did you have a lot of friends? Did you have people that you hung out with? Were you shy and an introvert? What was going on in high school for you? I was very extroverted, but I think that was the result of my childhood. I think that was a survival skill for me because as I've gotten older, I've realized that I'm more of an introvert, actually. I love socializing, but it does drain me a little bit. However, growing up and moving every couple of years and having to walk into new schools, sometimes in new countries and totally different cultures, I had to just buck up, put a smile on my face and ask Sally, like, what's her name? And does she want to come over for a play date? You know, really, I had to make my own life everywhere I went. There was no opportunity to just hang out with kids I'd known my whole life and, you know, not leave the house. Like, my husband grew up his whole life in Oklahoma City. He's had friends his whole life. Like, I have no idea what that would be like. So every two years, it was like going on more friend interviews and auditions. And so I learned to be really outgoing and friendly and make the ask and put myself out there. And I think that helped me later in life, just in retrospect, being comfortable in the uncomfortable. Because in high school or growing up at any time in life, right? Like it's hard to have to find your lunch table mates. It's scary to walk into a new school. And it didn't necessarily get easier. I just got better at dealing with that fear. And so because my parents were living overseas, at a certain point, they sent me to boarding school because the class size at our international school in Maidan, Sumatra was like two people in 10th grade. So they sent me to a boarding school in New England, very academic, very intense value system was academics and sports. And here I came, everyone's from New England and I'm like this curly haired girl from Indonesia and I am more creative and I really liked theater. And so that was never celebrated in that environment. And so I always felt a little bit like I wasn't very successful. I think I grew up feeling pretty confident, but then when I got to boarding school, they kind of like hammered that out of me. It was just very competitive. And it took me a long time to rebuild that confidence. Interesting. Wow. Really interesting. Yeah, high school's a tough time. I mean, I have three mm -hmm. sons of my own. They're all teenagers and I have my first son in college. And it's really been more than I was expecting as a parent. Not that you can have an expectation of something you don't know, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. can't know what you don't know. But bringing them up in the pandemic and watching them transform and go through teenage years, it doesn't look anything like what I went through. And it's, I think part of it is the pandemic that this happened to them. But it's also been kind of interesting being this close to watching the transformation because my mom didn't see anything. <laughs> she had no idea what was going on. But then I want to, <laughs> it's a good thing, actually. Um, so college, <laughs> I want to understand, okay, so you went to boarding school and I'm assuming you graduated from boarding school. And what about college? I don't know. What did you think you were going to do after high school? Did you know and have a plan for college? Did you go into yes. finance? What was going on? So this was a prep school. This was like, you didn't just know you were going to college out of this school. You were like, is it going to be Yale, Princeton, or Harvard? Now, having said that, I was kind of a little out of sorts. I was younger than a lot of the kids. I didn't have the same education. So I came in sort of behind and I didn't establish myself at the head of the class. 
So I did not go to Harvard or Yale, but I did go to a great school, Wesleyan. And Wesleyan is an incredible place. It's very free. It was sort of the opposite of where I had come from in this structured academic boarding school where I was taking classes in opera. They had an Indonesian gamelan class. Like it was really like choose your adventure at Wesleyan and everything was celebrated. And honestly, sometimes the wackier, the better. Now, having said that, I still was pretty pragmatic. I didn't have a family that was going to support me. I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have anything except whatever I was going to be making on my paycheck. So I decided to just get a really pragmatic job coming out of college. And I went into investment banking. It was really long hours, but a good general experience in business. It exposed me to technology founders and CEOs at a really young age. And it was enough of a paycheck that I could pay my rent in San Francisco. So that was a big deal for me. I love that because you weren't looking for Prince Charming. You were on the business track. I mean, no, seriously, I'm telling you, like I went to school with girls that were, they were looking for a husband. I was not one of them. I wasn't that girl. And I don't shame any woman that was because women, you know, in the United States and actually all over the world, we live in a permission based environment. We have to ask permission for things. And we, as quiet as it's kept, men are in charge of most of the movement of finance and business and jobs and human resources. So I have no shame with women that make a decision that the way that they're going to survive on the earth is by finding a partner that will help them get whole. I get it. I was just not that girl. It doesn't sound like you were either. Was Mm-mm. that something, was that intentional for you? Or were you not even thinking about it? You're just like, this is what I'm going to do. And you just kind of plowed forward. What was happening? I had no interest. In fact, I was like, I'm not getting married till I'm 40 plus, if ever. I just had no interest <laughs> in that. And, but of course, you, you actually can't... had a number. You're like 40 plus. I'm not getting married yeah, till I was 40 like, plus. I'm I love good. it. Like I was ready to take on the business world. I really was. I remember having these very early ideas of what working in the corporate world would be like based on watching Melrose Place. I don't know if you ever watched that show, (laughs) but like Heather Locklear would be clacking around the office in her high stilettos and like these short skirts, like anyone dresses like that. And particularly now and like everybody's in sweatpants and I eventually ended up in kitchen clogs, but I was like, that's what that's going to be me. And it was a very progressive school that I went to. You know, I felt like I was a feminist. I wanted to kind of make it in a man's world. There weren't that many people in investment banking. I felt like kind of a stud that I was there amongst all the guys. Like I was breaking through some glass ceilings, although just in a very, you know, this was just out of college. This wasn't any senior position, but I felt like I wanted to make my mark in the man's world. That was very important to me. And fast forward to when I reclaim my love of baking, I actually had a moment where I was like, is this somehow regressive if I am now making a living in the domestic arts? Because I felt like I was part of this movement to get us past that, right? And (laughs) then here I am going back to home ec. Like here I'm in investment baking, I'm gonna go home ec. But watching Martha Stewart and how she built this multimedia empire from like composting and crafting. That's my queen, I love her. That is my queen, I love her. And so unapologetic about it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, wait, I'm creating all of these rules for myself. Like I just broke out of some constructs and yet I'm putting myself in these other constructs of my own making. Like, no, if I'm passionate about something, I can make it what it is. I can make it feminist, right? And so that was a big deal for me.
so before you made the switch though to becoming this woman you're describing did you see other women building at your company at your job i mean were you getting mentoring from men were you looking at men as models what was going on so i was working with tech founders i was working in san francisco during the dot-com boom it was a really frothy time like there was so much happening in Silicon Valley. And I was working alongside these founders. But for me, that was a very intimidating and daunting type of entrepreneur. I wasn't some tech savant. I wasn't some engineer or genius. Like I never, ever thought I could be a founder of a tech company. Were they all men? Were you sort of the only woman in the room type of thing? Yes, there were a couple women at the investment bank, like in semi-senior positions. But Everyone else was a man and all of the founders that we were working with, like when we were taking their companies public or advising on M&A transactions, they were all men. And regardless, I hadn't been raised in this entrepreneurial environment. So I just thought I'm going to keep plugging along this corporate path. Entrepreneurship isn't for me. It's for those type of people. And then I saw a couple of my friends starting handbag companies and like a yoga wear line. And this was very different at the time because, you know, entrepreneurship, they weren't the rock stars that they are today. This was still pretty unusual. And I thought, wow, I can get my head around that type of entrepreneurship. And that really piqued my interest. And so seeing these female founders tackling industries that I felt like I understood and had a handle on and could have my own point of view on really opened up that world for me. So how did you see these women though? I mean, did you seek them out? Did you watch them on YouTube videos? I mean, actually YouTube, I don't even know if it, was, if it existed back then, Mm-mm. but how did, you, how did you come across these women that were giving you signals that you could do this? Literally, it was through friends of mine who said, Janie's starting a handbag line. And then I started to see her bags in stores that I would frequent. And I was like, wow, that's really taking off. I'm so proud of her. That's really brave and really cool. So yes, you're right. This was pre-YouTube. The access was minimal and mentorship was not a thing at the time. It, it really wasn't a wasn't, thing at all? It, not really. I mean, I look back on my time in investment banking and I think about a peer of mine who had a really close relationship with a more senior level woman at the investment bank. And I'm like, oh, okay, that was mentorship. But I didn't have that person in my life. And it certainly wasn't anything anyone was talking about. I mean, at the time, it was like, you worked so hard to get one of those positions. You weren't necessarily looking to give someone a leg up. You just were trying to get your place at the table. And that's something that I've seen just in my time in the career world is this real like 180 from competition to collaboration. And finally, all of, I think most women are getting behind the idea that like we're stronger together and we're stronger as a network and in helping one another and supporting one another. And I've loved seeing that. Yeah. And that is definitely a change, but there still is a lot of work to be done. I mean, (laughs) listen, I mean, women are still fighting for their seats at the table. They're fighting to get through the door. They're fighting to get up through the concrete. I mean, it's just, there's still a lot going on, but I am encouraged at the collaboration of women in businesses. I do think that there is a recognition. There's still some pushback from some women. They just want to keep going and you can't judge them for that because again, women are up against a lot. We're up against a lot at every single level of society. It's just, it's not just us in business.
right. I want to ask you now about Sprinkle. So you made a change and you're like, I'm going to do this. Can you talk a little bit about the bridge between you being in investment banking and Sprinkles? Because then I want to understand how were you brave? Like you were brave to do this. You were brave to start a business and you did it right before an incredible recession slammed, dunked into our lives. So talk a little bit about that world. And let me give you a little bit more context. So right now we're actually in what seems to be a recession right now, or we're heading into one. There's a lot of layoffs going on. I still think there's a lot of issues with supply chain. Ingredients are expensive. It seems really risky. But I know that there's many women in corporations right now that are realizing, oh my gosh, I haven't looked up from my table. I better look up and start looking out because there's insecurity happening. But there's also a lot of women, as you mentioned earlier, that have like side passion projects. And they're probably like, I wonder if I can do this. And I know it's slightly different, but maybe it's not. I mean, we're kind of in similar timeframes right now. What was that glue for you that you're saying, okay, that's it, I'm out. And then you're like, and here I go, I'm in here. I think it is very similar to the time we're going through right now because I've had one more recession than most people. And that was the dot-com bust in San Francisco. Devastated the economy in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. The after effects weren't felt until much later and sort of the Great Recession for the rest of the country. But I was like out of a job, no prospects. People were leaving the city in droves because there were no jobs to be had. And I was sitting there on the couch like, what do I do now? I thought this was all going to be set if I just did a good job and I marched my way up the company ladder. It was supposed to be secure. And hold on a second. Maybe that's a myth. Maybe I've bought into a myth all of this time. And then on top of that, a few months later, 9-11 happened. And I had this personal epiphany, which people talk about pandemic epiphanies, that, my God, if it's all so fleeting, I want to do something that I love, something that brings me joy, something that gives back to the world, even in a small way. And so instead of going to business school, I decided to go to pastry school. And I really, at the time, I have to say, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. I literally just wanted to play with like chocolate and flour and eggs and work in a kitchen and pull from an organic <laughs> like, garden. You're just like, I'm going to escape this. I was I, like, I'm I out. Wanna, I got to get out. I'm out. I got to get like, out. <laughs> I'm not happy. This is all a lie. Uh, it's uh, it's not secure. So what am I selling my soul She's for? She's going to become a revolutionary. Candace is like, I'm going to be a revolutionary. <laughs> one cupcake at a time. And this to me, this was my, because side hustles, again, that wasn't really a thing back then. If side hustling had been a thing, I might have gotten another job and side hustled the baking thing, but it wasn't. So I knew I loved to bake. I didn't know if I wanted to do it as a career or if it should just stay a hobby on the weekends. So I went to pastry school to test my interest. And what I realized was I loved it. I loved how tactile it what was. What pastry school? It was called Tante Marie's. And it's no longer there, but it was a really well-known and respected, beloved pastry school in the North Beach area of San Francisco. And San Francisco is such a phenomenal food city at the time. It's not as much these days, but I became really knowledgeable about chefs and ingredients and, you know, would spend my weekends walking the Ferry Plaza farmer's market and just tasting chocolate and learning about coffee. Like it became this incredible passion of mine. And in going to pastry school, I realized I really did love it. I loved getting up and immersing myself in that world every day. So is that when you 
decided you were going to do cupcakes or when did the cupcake piece happen? I mean, did you completely just resign your job and you walked out and quit? It was more of the company was going under. So it was kind of like a parting of ways. Okay. So it wasn't a quiet quitting, which is what people are doing these days. It was really sort of like a really good opportunity, timing, all the things. No, it was like I was no longer had a job. All of the internet companies had gone under. The investment banks weren't hiring because that was their bread and butter. I mean, everyone was suffering. Like all of my peers were just going to business school so that they could like right. hang out for a couple of years and hope the economy got better. Yeah, and hang on, hang on. I get it. Mm -hmm. So totally get it. So it didn't start with cupcakes. I started with cakes, actually, because I'd been number crunching for so long. I wanted to be as creative as possible. So I was like, what better than these beautiful custom cakes, which they were creatively fulfilling, but they were really a business dead end. I was like, these take so long to make. They're totally personalized. There's no way to grow this business. I got to think of something else. And so at the time, cupcake towers were becoming a trendy thing for weddings. And I had just gotten married. So I'd been going through Martha Stewart Weddings Magazine and seeing all these really beautiful cupcake towers. And at the same time, I would walk through my supermarket and see all of these really basic cupcakes like stacked in plastic clamshells. And I'm like, hold on a second. Here's this beloved American treat. It is not being given the respect it deserves. Like this cupcake needs a makeover. And so I set about to really elevate it from the inside out. So ingredients and baking fresh, but keeping that playfulness, but making it more elevated with the style of the frosting, the ingredients, the decorations. And I thought, here's something that I can sell every day, but it's still elevated, still scratching that itch in terms of being artful, but it is an actual business that I could scale. I mean, here's the thing though, starting a cupcake company to me is wild. It is wild. I'm like cupcakes, like I feel like, like you said, there's cupcakes everywhere. Did you have no fear? Like what was happening with you that you got, and I, I hate using the word courage. It's like courage. What is courage? What does it mean? I understand fear more than I do courage. Like I'm scared of a lot of stuff. I mean, I plow through, I make it happen. I don't know. What did you do to say yes to all these things and just keep going? Because right now there's a lot of women that are scared to death and they have a right to be. There's a lot going on. There's just too much, right? Can you talk about that thing that, did you squash it? Did you kill it? Did you just let it come to the front of your third eye? Like what was going on? So I think you nailed it by saying you have fear, but you don't let it stop you. And I'll be the first to say plenty of fear going into sprinkles, plenty of fear at the end of sprinkles and you know, whatever I'm doing next, like the fear for me Certainly I get more confident the more I do things, but the fear for me, because I'm constantly challenging myself to do new things and take on new projects and industries, the fear doesn't go away. But the key is not letting it stop you. And the more often you do that, you start to exercise that muscle and like it just becomes familiar territory. And I feel like my journey started, as I said, as a child, showing up at the new school, being scared to death, and just smiling and trying to make a friend. Like that's where it began and it hasn't ended, but I've just gotten better at doing it. And I will say, because I was not raised in this household that really, you know, led me to believe I could be an entrepreneur, I still didn't really see myself in that way. And even though I had this great idea, elevate the cupcake, create a cupcakes only bakery, make a cupcake branded and aspirational and giftable, I might not have done it, 
if my husband, I give him a lot of credit, who also came from the banking world, hadn't said, you can do this, I believe in you, and anyone could say that. Like, it just is having that person who believes in you that gives you, I don't know, a little more lift, gives you a little more fearlessness because you know that someone's got your back. And so he was that emotional support for me and he was giving up on his career as well. And by the way, people laughed at me, people really laughed at him. His banker bros were like, you're doing what? You're gonna leave your job and like <laughs> drive your wife around to sell 100%, cupcakes? 100%, right? 100%. So he had a lot of fortitude. I had a conversation with a couple women, executive C-suite women, both from Google, actually. One is at Amazon right now and one's still at Google. And we were talking about, again, the permission-based environment, but also what it's like to have a breadwinning woman running the show and what is it like for the man who's with that woman. It's just like, it's just a lot to unpack on that. You mentioned something about branding, and I'm really mm -hmm. curious because, you know, I have a brand strategy company, right? Burt Creative. I do naming, visual identity, social media, online brand reputation, startup strategies, all kinds of campaign executions. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money to do these things. I'm a luxury B2B company, right? I do a lot of luxury B2B work. I don't mean luxury brand like I don't work with Louis Vuitton. I mean, I work with Google, Facebook, Advocate Healthcare, all these larger companies. You know, I get this question, should I make a logo now? Should I name the company first? Should I trademark it? Do I make the product first? What do I do? Do I release it to the market? Do I do branding later? Sprinkles has a great name, beautiful colors, incredible design, storefront design, interior design, packaging, the way the word is said. You know, there's just so much that is a part of Sprinkles. Can you talk a little bit about how you approached that branding process as you were starting up, was it happening at the same time? Like what was going on? Because there's a lot happening. Did you have an idea at first that you put out there and then it evolved into something bigger? Did you have a sketch pad? Did you hire someone? What was the process? Because this sometimes can be a barrier to people moving forward. They get frozen with the branding piece. Yeah, it really helps to have a strong branding person working with you. There really is no skimping on branding. Now, having said that, we were not a luxury brand at the time. We had a little bit of money that we were giving ourselves to get this business off the ground. And it was dwindling pretty rapidly. As we started looking for a location, we had moved from San Francisco down to Los Angeles to start this business. And the economy in LA was still really good. So it was a tight real estate market and we were having a hard time finding a location. What that did give us was a lot of time to really nail the look and feel of the cupcakes and the brand. But it did start with the name. Sprinkles was a name that literally came to me when I was walking through an airport. I was walking past like a, a food court. Not that I ever wanted Sprinkles to be a food court brand, but I was like, I just saw it. I saw it emblazoned like Sprinkles. It literally came to me in a vision. It sounds witchy, but it did. And then of course I had to make sure it wasn't in use by another bakery. By some good fortune, it wasn't. It was only in use for a children's clothing brand. So we trademarked it. Boom, done. And then worked alongside a former Martha Stewart creative director and an architect in developing this brand. But she wasn't a graphic designer. So when I tell you, she was kind of helping us direct the process, but we were like trying to find graphic designers on Craigslist and like, okay, literally trying to find someone who could work the, the software. But we knew what we wanted. And again, the brand identity 
really was derived from what we were creating, which was a luxury upscale cupcake. So your brand identity, though, is also on your cupcake. You know, I feel like you're looking back and simplifying a very complicated process. You know, you have a look and a feel, you have a color palette, you have the shape of your cupcakes, which is very unique. That translates to, you know, storefront design, things like that. I mean, I can't imagine that you just hit the ground running and just got quiet, went into a room and brought everything together in 30 days or 45 days, and then suddenly you have a thing. Was there an evolution? Did it change? Does it look the same as it did in the beginning? I mean, what was that like? It was such an evolution because at the time I was baking out of my West Hollywood apartment. So I kind of had cultivated this small but devoted following of people who just loved my cupcakes. They really didn't care what the brand was. And at the time, the brand was still in process, but it evolved over time. And I remember the first logo we did actually was very sort of 50s style, like L.A. retro. We were really kind of playing on this. Yeah, it's not good. It's not it's good. It's not good. I want to see it. It's, I want to see it. But it all came together. And like, as we found our spot in Beverly Hills, we just realized like, this is a artisanal luxury product. And every touch point has to reflect that, including the 90210 zip code. And we used chocolate brown cupcake wrappers because it felt more elegant and really grounded the cupcakes. We used a offset spatula to frost because it had that more handcrafted quality versus, you know, a piping bag, which felt more production style. The bakery itself, we wanted it to be, you know, it's so easy to just fall into like cutesy, kitschy pink when it comes to confections and cupcakes. And we wanted to incorporate pink, but really ground it in this chocolate brown and then bring in warm, natural woods. We wanted to appeal to guys as well as gals, right? We wanted it to be a gender neutral aesthetic because cupcakes truly are for everyone. Keeping that spirit of nostalgia and playfulness, but making it more elevated then made it acceptable for kids and adults. Can I ask you, is the little circle ball on your cupcake, is that trademarked? It is. It I is. mean, that I mean, that's the thing. Like, I'm just like, this is to me, massive intellectual property. Yes, it really is. Because there's a lot going on with that dot. Did you know to do that in the beginning? Or is this someone that, that did someone come up to you and say, look, Candace, like, we got to lock this down because this is like, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And we need you to do this. So I knew going into this venture, I was betting my life savings on cupcakes and coming from the technology and investment banking world, I knew that there was nothing defensible really about this company, this idea, which is a problem. If you don't have a moat, if you don't have anything to protect against competition and you have a successful business, guess what? Competition is coming and they can imitate you within an inch of your life. And so even though we had gone to so much work, we've recreated the whole display case into something new and different. We'd done so much thoughtful work on creating this brand from scratch. We from scratch. weren't able to, yeah, <laughs> we weren't able to trademark much of it. We couldn't trademark the modern dot right off the bat. It had to become synonymous with sprinkles. So once we were in business for a few months and those modern dots were going out on almost all of the cupcakes and people started to know us by that modern dot, then we could apply. And we had to bring in the testimonials from various experts that are well-known in the design world and the food world. I mean, it's a whole process. We tried to do the same thing for our display stand, which were these sliding trays at this angle, and they were all die cut. And what happened was they said, it's too late. It's already 
the new standard in the cupcake world. It's like ubiquitous. So you're too late. So even though we created it, people had, I had ripped you're us kidding off me. Are so you serious? Quickly. Yes. What? So there is a real art to the Another woman of when contributing something amazing to humanity <laughs> and does and goes unnoticed. <laughs> Silent heroes, invisible labor. It's the story of a woman's life. It just doesn't stop, girl. It doesn't stop. <laughs> I want to talk more about the intellectual property in the context of knowledge transfer. So the tricky part of being an entrepreneur is that maybe you're building generational wealth, maybe you're not. You have a family. I define wealth as more than money. I define it as ownership. So I have a band called Utah Carol. It's a country rock band. And we have three, four albums. We have three albums. Yeah, we have four albums. And I've copyrighted all the music. Like I'm responsible for the copywriting of all the music and putting in the digital codes. IP can have a lifetime value. I want to ask you, is that something that you think about or did you think about it? Because I know that you sold sprinkles to a private equity company, but what should entrepreneurs or business owners or startup people or people that are working on side passion projects, how should they be thinking about the intellectual property, not only in terms of protecting their ideas, but also in terms of what does this do for the family? Because I feel like for women, again, it takes a lot for us to make money our own money. We're not fully financially independent. I think about, and I know some people are making jokes about Prince Harry right now, but what stood out to me with his interview with Oprah Winfrey was, he said, my mother took care of me no matter what. She left me an extraordinary amount of money so that I could live and take care of my family. And that was his mother that did that. What are your ideas around knowledge transfer, intellectual property protection, especially as it relates to family and being a woman that invented something really amazing? Well, I mean, your intellectual property is part of the value of your brand, and it's a big piece of it. Just in terms of, think about if you were to sell your business someday. I mean, that's one of the first pieces that any potential acquirer is going to look at. Do you have your trademarks and your copyrights locked up? And do you have your financials in order? I mean, that's like your housekeeping. And Sprinkles, that was a huge part of the value of the brand. I mean, the name Sprinkles had such value, that modern dot was such a protective piece of the brand that had such value. And this was unique in a space that not many people would go into the bakery world and think about intellectual property. So it was a real differentiator for us. And it's sort of a signal that you're a real business person. You're going about this the right way. You're taking care of the important housekeeping. And you know what's important. Like there are certain priorities in business. You just need to have certain parts of your house in order. And if you've got those in shape, I think you're doing your family, your future, your wealth. I mean, such a service. So why did you not, I mean, you sold to a private equity company. Did you ever think to yourself, I could be the Ray Kroc of cupcakes and just sort of build a giant sprinkles and make it global and franchise it and just sort of do all that? I mean, maybe that is what's happening. So yes, the best time to sell your business is when things are going really well. That's also the hardest time to sell your business. <laughs> I am so glad you said that. I'm so glad, Candace, because one of my questions to you also was, when you have success, how do you turn your back on success and go on to the next thing? So go ahead. I mean, talk about that idea of being the Ray Kroc of cupcakes, because right. that's what I feel like when I look at your brand. 
Right. So we had so much going on. There was still so much buzz in the brand in 2012. I had just in, come out with the cupcake ATM. That was going crazy. And there was so much that somebody could take and really kind of make hay with, essentially. And I think there were a couple of things happening. One was, personally, I had two young boys who I had been toting around with me to every store opening because we were so hands-on, Charles and myself, and we wanted to hire everyone, train everyone, make sure the company culture was intact. Well, that meant we were living in Dallas for several months. We were living in New York for a month. And when my kids were little, that was fine. But once they started going to school, having activities, these sorts of things, it was really important for me because I had never had that to give them roots and give them stability. And so I didn't want to be on the road all the time. There's also something that we used to talk about in investment banking called founder syndrome. When the person who founds a business and grows it and has success, but like has this chokehold on the business and will not let go of the reins and thinks nobody else could carry this business to success besides me. And that was kind of made fun of in banking circles. It's like, oh, right. You're like, okay, you're the founder, but now let's get someone real to run this business. And that's not always true. And I think that was a little maybe derogatory in some way, like not giving the founder enough credit. But I had that in the back of my head. I didn't want to have founder syndrome. And I love that zero to one piece of the business. I love the crafting of the brand, the go to market, those early startup days. But the business had scaled to a national brand. It was a brick and mortar of 11 stores across the country. That's really hard to run operationally. And I didn't feel like I was the right person for the job. I did want to hand the reins to somebody who could take everything we'd created and just launch it. So for both business and personal reasons, we stepped away from the business. So hard to do, like so, so, so hard because Sprinkles was truly my first child. I raised it. I got it through all its like cranky growth spurts. And then it's kind of like I sent it off to college. And, and then I was left with like, who am I? And I really love that because positioning your business for success is number one, but you talked about the intellectual property organization of the business. Back then, there probably wasn't a big digital footprint because I do read a lot about companies that haven't taken care of their online brand reputation, which causes difficulties when it comes to selling the business because the investment to clean things up online, to get inventory in order, to get all the websites together and the social media channels, that wasn't a thing then, right? When you sold to the private equity company or was it? So we did build a custom website to help with ordering and all that. Anytime oh, we invested in technology, okay. we it. did custom. spend mm -hmm. more on technology than anyone would assume that we would because we were really building this brand to scale. Now, having said that, that was really hard to do because once we had money coming in, you know, my car was breaking down. We were still in a rental and I was like, now it's time to invest in this. Now it's time to invest in that. Like you have to invest in your business. It's not like once your business is doing well, you're doing well, unless you just plan to suck up everything that's coming your way. I mean, we wanted to grow our business. All right. So Candace, it's just fascinating understanding the platform that you created so that this brand could live without you. A lot of entrepreneurs and business owners 
they're so attached to their brand and their invention that it's hard to separate the two, but you were able to do this successfully. And I know that's a much longer conversation because one of the questions I get all the time is how do I separate myself from my brand? And that's a whole thing that we could spend an hour talking about how to do it because you've done it. But what I really want to ask you now is the corporate connections. Sprinkles is at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. I stumbled across it at Disneyland. I was like, oh my God, it's in the center of Disney's downtown Disney. There's so much going on. I mean, I was just like, this is incredible to me. I have like ACDVE certifications. I'm an airport concessionaire. One of the things that I think women have trouble with are these corporate relationships and women that own a business, right? What does it take for us to crack this? Now, I know that you sold the company and there's more players involved to get the business out there. But do you have any strategies or suggestions or ideas for how we can develop corporate relationships so that we can do business with corporations? The woman who founded Hint, for example, one of the stories that she always tells is her first big break came when Google decided to procure her drink, Hint, you know, flavored waters into their corporate offices. That was a huge thing that completely transformed her company. And now she's built wealth. Do you have ideas around what that looks like? I mean, it would be a dream for my company to be a contractor for Disney. That is something that has been on my vision board for probably 10 years. Like what's stopping us from having success like this at scale? Why are there just a few women here and there that make this happen? Do you have strategies and ideas around that? Well, Disney for us was, keep in mind, not number one or number two or number three of our locations, right? Disney came around when we were a little bit more of a mature brand. Disney is not gonna partner with just everyone. And I actually share a funny story in my book because as much as I believe in IP, it can be easy to sort of misstep when it comes to that. So when we first opened to Disney, I was like, oh my gosh, if you put the modern dots together in this little design with the two ears up here and the face down here, it looks like Mickey Mouse. That's so cute. <laughs> we're gonna put that on our cupcakes. We're gonna celebrate Disney. We even painted it on the wall. Okay, we got that cease and desist letter from Disney's lawyers so fast, make your head spin. And I was like, oh my God, here I am talking about all these people who are trespassing <laughs> on RIP. <laughs> And I inadvertently did it with Disney. Scary. I'm like, oh my God, they're going to kick us out. So yes. I love that story so much. So funny. I was like, it's so cute. They're going to love it. We're celebrating Mickey Mouse. I mean, what an <laughs> idiot. Like, I know better than that. <laughs> well, you know what? Seeing Sprinkles at Disney was great for me. The line was out the door. We went back. All the cupcakes were sold out. I was like, are you kidding me? Oh, so we had no. to go the next day and get our sprinkles. Yeah. No, but go ahead. Finish your story because it's pretty amazing. No, it's amazing. I think for us, it really was about the brand and how careful we were with the brand. And then also, like, you have to package your own company and market it. I mean, we were marketing our business as successful as it was. I mean, the line spoke for themselves back in those early days. But as successful as it was, we still had to market our business to the decision makers at Disney and really kind of get buy-in from other real estate people to say like, okay, these guys pay their rent. These guys run a good business. And it really is that reputation, both personal and for your business, that you need to keep in mind if you're trying to align yourself with other blue chip brands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But finding those, really those good decision make yeah finding those decision makers and packaging your brand um, mm -hmm. just like you would 
your own personal brand. I mean, I love that because another woman on business I interviewed a while ago, she has a company in Chicago called Ruby Room, and she used to always take her brand and put it up against other major global brands just to make sure that she could stack up. Like that was her way of knowing that I can be at the same playing field as Tiffany's or Hilton, that kind of thing. I want to ask you about your book. Now, I'm excited about your book. I think it's amazing. I love it. But here's what I want to know about your book, because a lot of entrepreneurs want to write a book. Why did you write this book? And how in the world did you get through the process of writing this book? You know, you have a publisher, you didn't self publish it, right? I mean, were you mm -hmm. staring at the ceiling at night saying it's time for me to write my book? Because we're all trying to write our book, all of us entrepreneurs, you know, this, you've probably been working on it for years in your head, and you finally executed. What was your process to get going with your book? I mean, I'll tell you what actually helped the book come to life was the pandemic. The really? fact that, yes, everything wow. was wiped off my social calendar. I didn't even have to drive my boys to school. They were Zoom schooling. And I work in retail. So it's like we were shut down for a long time. So oh, I had wow. nothing but time on my hands. And I normally am a goer, doer, thinking about what's happening next week, next year. I don't ever sit down and reflect on where I've been, the mistakes I've made, and never do I ever sit down and think about what I did right. So this was a really special time for me to have the time and space to think about the journey that I've been on because it was pretty cool. Like it was really wild. And also to share the mistakes I'd made, the things I did well, in the hopes that I could encourage and inspire other women to bet on themselves and bet on their dreams and go for it. And did you know that you were going to have a publisher publish it or did you ever consider self-publishing? Because I consider myself an innovator and I do think self-publishing is the future, I did think about it. However, I do still believe that having a publisher, it's old school, but it is that sort of legitimacy stamp. And because this was a new space for me, I had a New York Times bestselling cookbook, but for me to write a business book was, a little bit of a pivot for me. And so I felt like I needed that gravitas of a publishing house. Okay, that's fair. If I were to that's do fair. it again, if I were to okay. do it again, I would probably self-publish. That's good to know. I mean, it's good to know a lot of us struggle with that about how we should mm -hmm. go about that. Okay, listen, I have some rapid fire questions I'm going to ask you and everybody needs to check out Candace's book, Sweet Success, A Simple Recipe to Turn Your Passion into Profit. I could talk to you for so much longer. Oh my God, I still I have know. more questions. I'm going to have to meet you in person and I like definitely. ask you these other questions. But let me ask you some really rapid fire questions. What is a business you launched that you failed is my first question. Or do you even have one? Sure. Sprinkles ice cream. We started- Sprinkles ice cream? Yes, there was an offshoot of the brand. We rolled out <laughs> wow. ice cream into several of our locations. The product was incredible, but it just never took off. And the business model never matched up to the business model of cupcakes, where people come in and buy two dozen at a time versus spending 15 minutes deciding on one scoop of ice cream. Wow. Okay. What's on your musical playlist right now? One song. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm so terrible with this. You could say Utah Carol, my band. Probably, yes. <laughs> no, just yes, kidding. Utah Carol and I'm gonna Elton send you John. some music. Elton, Elton John's John? latest. Hits, yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. His, his remixes. Yeah. What are your go-to fashions? I love Neely Lotan. I wear her jeans, her high-waisted jeans incessantly. And she just does really luxe like, classics. 
very well. I could wear everything in her line. Lipstick or lip gloss? I'm actually wearing lipstick today, but I'm such a lip gloss girl. I love Tower 28 lip jellies. The best. I love it. And what is a book that you read recently or even the last year that's not a business book? Oh, God, you're getting me where it hurts. I have like all this nonfiction stacked up. Even a short story. And maybe not. Maybe you don't have one. And that's fair, too. When I read, I'm on my Kindle a lot of the time. But what was I was reading a bunch of short stories by someone by the name. Don't kill me. Oh, and I have a new phone now. So it's asking for a password to my Kindle. Hold on. His name is Gay. And it's about joy. Oh, a book about joy. I love it. Inciting joy. Ross Gay. I keep hearing about this book. Mm -hmm. I keep hearing about this book, Inciting Joy. I hear about it. Wow. Listen, Candice, I love your answers. Come back to me with another song, your playlist. And next time, it's definitely going to be one of the Utah Carol songs. I'm going to send you all the <laughs> records. Um, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the Honest Field Guide podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to have another conversation with you at some point about branding. I think you have a lot more to share on the branding side. And I want to have an exclusive branding conversation with you. Sounds good. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us on the Honest Field Guide podcast. I hope you can come and tune in for the next show. And I am Ginger. And I'm Candace. Thank you for joining and please tune in next time. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only. Please do your own research.